Welcome to For the Long Run, the podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. I've been running for a few years now and have the privilege of meeting many incredible runners on my travels all across the country. This podcast is intended to share those amazing conversations. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And welcome back. Today I have Lindsay Krauss joining me today. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining in. Thanks for having me. Of course. So the big question, and I warned you by saying that the first question is the hardest of the of the interview. Um, who is Lindsay? Who am I? Who is Lindsay Krauss? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, who indeed? Um, I am a senior editor and a reporter at the New York Times uh, and also a marathon runner. Awesome. So if you don't know Lindsay, um, she has she has been a part of some pretty monumental uh, stories uh, from the New York Times. And and this has contributed to some fairly large structural change, I'd say. Um, so first, Lindsay, thanks for everything that you do and um, continue to do for, for our community in general. Um, I think it's... Yeah, thanks to the community for amplifying it, because if, nothing, if you just kind of reported the stuff into a vacuum, then definitely nothing would change. For sure. So I'm particularly referring to Mary Kane's um, storytelling and and what you did to help her get her message out. So I want to know where did that come from? How did how did that come about? Uh, well, that was an outcome of a lot of reporting I'd done over the course of the year and over the course of my career to a certain extent. Um, I've always been an editor at the Times, and because I am a runner myself and, you know, have been for at this point for years and years, I've always just really been involved in the community. And I've always thought that the, um, you know, the stories of the athletes at the peak of our sport and those who have been, you know, almost like adjacent to the peak of our sport and maybe disappeared. I've always really thought a lot about those stories. And so, um, I would say it was maybe two years ago at this point that I started to kind of build on some reporting that I'd done years earlier with sort of a more of a advocacy oriented lens where we exposed maternity challenges that certain female runners faced if they did want to have pregnant with their sponsors. Um, we cast Alicia Montano um, as the first spokesperson for it. We used Allison Felix as um, a second person, a more current example of that story. And it we released that on Mother's Day last year, so almost a year ago, and it had a, a tremendous impact in both the running community and sort of in the um, kind of like broader American and global community as well. And I think that was really exciting for a lot of runners and a lot of professional athletes in general to realize that they could, you know, kind of stand up for themselves if they wanted to and um, that it could have an impact and that there were, um, you know, journalists that would help them and support them in that. And so Mary told me that she had, really respected Allison in particular for, um, you know, taking a major risk by speaking up uh, about the challenges that, just, that she'd been facing as a mother, a, a, an athlete and a mother um, with her sponsor at the time. And I followed Mary's ascent and it always kind of guessed maybe what had happened to her when she kind of disappeared off the scene. I think a lot of athletes a lot of female athletes can relate in some ways to Mary's story. And um, so Mary came to me and said that she'd seen what Allison had done and she wanted to do something similar. And at first she wanted to do an op-ed, um, but I really thought that it could be even more powerful if we heard her story from her in her words herself, if we actually saw her face on screen, if we heard the emotion in her voice um, as she related what happened to her. And, um, it, you know, I kind of sold my colleagues on it. They aren't athletes in exactly the same way. So I don't know if 
they necessarily understood the gravity of her story at first. But as we move forward and I really conveyed to them like just how big a deal this could be. Um, I was able to work with a ton of colleagues at the time uh, and particularly on my video team to just kind of get, make her story as big as it possibly could be. And it wound up being the top story out of opinion last year writ large and one of the top 100 stories in the New York Times overall, which I think for a female runner is is so uncommon. Um, it was just a it, the outcome that it had is just tremendous. I think it's awesome. And I think it, it stems from bravery and, and wanting to help others improve. And it's funny, I was introduced to Mary by Alexi Pappas and Alexi's whole mantra and, and persona is being brave. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly what everyone you mentioned exemplifies. It's, Here's something that happened. It wasn't great, um, but I'm being brave and talking about it so that others can learn from me and my experience. Yeah. I mean, I think people talk a lot about like like risk and failure are huge kind of like buzzwords right now in society. But I think, you know, you're not being really brave unless the night before you publish something, like you're kind of freaking out, like, you know, you've done all your due diligence, you've, you've thought all this through, you know what you're doing, but you still don't know what the outcome will be. And, you know, when you went, you know, when Mary finally saw it, I think she was really moved, but I think she was like, Oh, wow, this is really happening. And, you know, for me, even publishing, it's like, I've, I've checked this out, but like, I've reported this story, but you just don't know what the outcome is going to be with something like that. Um, especially after the reporting that we'd done on the maternity, it's like you go to sleep knowing this is going to publish at 5 a.m. And, you know, you can't sleep because you just don't know what's <laughs> going to happen next. Um, and I think that's, that is bravery. And I, I really respect Mary for, um, for taking that step and the other women that shared their stories with me at, at major risk of retribution from, from their sponsors. Um, they all broke the rules and that that's audacious. That is true bravery. So what was it like working with this group that um, they were, like you said, they were breaking the rules. They were going against the grain and doing what their contracts said they shouldn't do. Um, what was that process like? I mean, that was that was tremendously stressful because I'm asking them to speak up about one of the most painful moments in their life. I mean, if you look at Kara Goucher, she's had a, a lot of challenges with Nike, but this is this is beyond just her career. This is her family. Um, and I can totally see why someone would just want to, you know, move on and say, this is a challenge I faced, but why should I put myself on the line? Why should I go on the record about something that is so painful for me when I don't necessarily have a lot to gain? Um, and that would be totally respectable. Um, but you know you you try to you try to explain to people what you're trying to do with their story and how you're trying to treat it how you're trying to amplify it out there i mean it's the truth and people needed to hear the truth and so you know alicia was willing to put her name on this story and kind of go public with it and so i wrote her up a script you know i reported it out i wrote her up a script and we just had her deliver the story in the form of a Nike ad. And then with Kara, uh, totally understandably, she was like, if Nike sues me for this, like, will the New York Times lawyers back me up? And we can't. All we can do is verify what she's saying. Um, and ultimately, she decided that she was going to do it. And I I mean, that is bravery. That is, um, I respected that so much. And if I hadn't had a chorus of women, ultimately... I mean, Alison Felix, like she, her, her contract was still pending um, when she did that. And when she came forward and yeah, I just have tremendous respect for these women, especially in a position as vulnerable as being a mother and a new mother. Um, like a lot of them were, they, they really did risk so much uh, to come forward. It's kind of like David and Goliath. And um, all you can do is tell them that I may not be able to back you up legally in a lawsuit. But if your sponsor does sue you for telling the truth, I can get that, you know, as much coverage as I, you know, as is possible in the times. And 
that's what I can do to protect you. That's awesome. Um, so what's really cool, particularly with the maternity piece, is we started seeing change and yeah. we started seeing companies. I, I spoke with Aaron Stroud at length about this on the podcast and I was like, why didn't they get it? What, like, I, I'm, I get it from the brand side or I see it from the brand side totally opposite um, how these major shoe companies were seeing it. I see, I see women when they're, you know, in this stage of their life, that that's the most relatable they'll ever be. And it's a major miss or it had been a major miss to not um, highlight them at that time. And and now you see companies like ultra, um, you know, working with, with athletes and a handful of other companies that are, that have, you know, caught up to that idea and they're humanizing this aspect of human life. And it's not like it's um, some outlandish behavior. It's like <laughs> there's there's one way for, for humans to survive and it's through pregnancy and giving birth. And so it's like it's it's an essential human function. Why would you not highlight it? Um, yeah, well, so I think, long way to. I, th I think it's yeah. actually not exactly true to say that they didn't see the value of it. I mean, if you look at Kara Goucher's story, she was on the front, on the cover of the sports section of the New York Times um, for Mother's Day when she found out she was pregnant on behalf of Nike um, with Paula Radcliffe. You know, she, I think she made something like a dozen media appearances at the behest of, of her sponsor, Nike, while mm -hmm. she was pregnant um, during, again, a high-risk pregnancy. And she didn't necessarily want to. She was doing it because she was hoping to get paid. It was, it was risky for her to do that. And so it's not to say that the marketing departments didn't see that this was a massive opportunity for them. It's that the, um, the, there were they weren't legally required in their contracts um to pay her for it and so they didn't and um payment there was was tied to her racing performances not to her media appearances and i think that's what needed to change um but again what's the what what incentive does a company have to change anything when their athletes that they sponsor are powerless to change anything on on um, or to advocate for, you know, for future generations, there's, there is no reason for them to change it. Um, so we needed to get public attention on the problem in order for that to happen. So, how, so do you think, do you think it, it is improving in terms of the, the contracting process? Well, again, Nike changed uh, changed their policy, so now they're not allowed to penalize a pregnant woman for I think it's like eight. I would have to check the exact amount, but I think it's like eighteen months before, during, and after pregnancy. Well, um, before birth, and then after in the in the period after birth, because I think the part that always struck me. I mean, even when I was reporting this out years and years ago, that is kind of a particular a particularity in a cruelty in this case of pregnancy is that if you do want to be a female athlete and pregnant, it's not just like you have your baby and then you can go back to work. It's this right. really long period of gestation and then postpartum recovery. And then even just the training of coming back to it of coming back from it. And it's not to say that you can't do it. I also wonder if more, if it will become more of a thing people do now that they're now that maybe there's less stigma around it. But um, I was particularly interested in the idea of women coming back better afterwards, but you mm -hmm. shouldn't have to. All you should be able to do is to try. For sure. How do you think the the postponement of the Olympics plays into this? Uh, I mean, that's that's such a hard decision, right? I mean, you've got all of these women who a lot of them do plan their um, their families. You mean to. The, I mean, the other cruelty around this is like, how can you even plan when you're going to get pregnant or not? Like there's fertility is such a complicated issue and it's on its own right, whether you're an elite athlete or not. Um, but they only have this tiny window and now, now that's kind of been upended. Um, I, I personally don't know. I haven't had a lot of conversations with women about it. It's so sensitive, but it's a massive consideration. I'm really feeling for the athletes that whose lives, whose personal lives and their families are affected by this. For sure. Um, so switching gears a little bit. Um, so the, the focus of this podcast is exploring the why uh, behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. And the majority of the guests on the podcast are high-performing athletes. And I've I've opened it up a little bit lately to 
include high-performing professionals. But it's sort of rare to have a combination of both in the same um, in the same interview. So I want to I want to switch gears a little bit to your own running and and your own you know high-level marathoning. Um, you've you've written at length about women's running and and the the trajectory of the sport uh, while at the same time running faster than you might ever have imagined. Um, so what's what has that been like? How has the sort of tangential um, or parallel um, running experience that you've had um, evolved? I mean, I think it's always been kind of chicken and egg for me. I mean, I was an athlete and as a runner in, in high school, I was like pretty good, but in the state of Rhode Island, which felt pretty insular compared to, you know, you, if you, it's like kind of when the internet was starting. So you could like dig around these stats and just what the girls in California <laughs> were doing, which is so far out of my yeah. league that I was like, I don't even, can't even relate to that. Um, but I really loved the sport. And then I, I walked on in college. So and was never that good, but, um, but I really did make a lot of good friends. And then I, I started running after, um, after college in New York, just with like a lot of those same teammates. And, um, it's a good way to like hang out with your friends, kind of hang out with your roommates, um, and obviously stay healthy. And it was a really nice balance to, to work. And, um, and so I, I don't know, I just, I kept doing it and I kept liking it. Um, and then, and then I got a job at the times, maybe like five or six years out of college. And we weren't really doing a lot of women's sports. We definitely weren't doing a lot of run, um, running coverage. And we especially weren't doing a lot of women's running, running coverage. So I just kind of saw an opening there where I was like, I thought my friends were doing interesting things. I thought the people, the friends of my friends were doing interesting things. And I just kept raising my hand to kind of cover some of it, um, especially from my own perspective, because I think the way I saw female runners and kind of, I guess, like the inspiration they were having for me, I figured other people would probably be interested in those stories as well. Um, and I was especially always interested in sort of like those sub elite, definitely the professional runners I'm interested in. And I think you could write an entire like business school case study on, you know, people like Shalane Flanagan does Linden and just like the way that they, um, achieve success, I think is scalable to a lot of other sectors, but subtly athletes, especially female athletes really interest me because I think it's just all still pretty new in a lot of ways. Um, and therefore pretty exciting. Like, and I think we really saw that this year, um, and last year with sort of this surge of sub elite American women and, in some ways, what they've done has, um, or I guess you could say, I what I've done has mirrored what they what they've done. Where um, there almost has been like this baton pass of American women getting really good at the um, at the professional level, kind of handing, and then that, and then that kind of trickling down to like really good sub elite women, and then other good sub elite women, and then um, people like me. And I feel like I didn't realize that that was happening until it was happening. And I finally, you know, I had a bunch of injuries for a while, um, like a lot of other sub elite women. Like I wrote an article about Allie Kiefer and how she dealt with that. Um, and while I was kind of writing about her doing so well in New York, like I'd also had the same sort of challenges and the same outcome at, at a at a less competitive level, but the satisfaction and the, I think the psychological element is the same. And, um, when I saw all these other amazing sub elite women, like a lot of whom I think it's really important to note, they also weren't like great in college. And that probably has influenced their psychology of like the idea of just kind of being in the, you know, doing a race, not because you're winning, but because you love mm -hmm. it and because you're improving on your own terms. Um, soon as I kind of saw what they were doing, I realized I could do that too. And what was really exciting about that was that it wasn't just saying like, I could do it. It was like, I kind of did do it. And it was also cool that I didn't actually succeed when I, like, <laughs> I wanted to try to try, try to make the Olympic marathon trials. And I mean, that's like an insane goal for someone like me to want to do, but it was like, actually, you run two. 251? 253. Um, 253. I think I could have broken 250. It's been kind of bittersweet with all these race cancellations because it's like, <laughs> you know, I, like, I'm going to get married. Like I may ha have a kid at some point too. And it's like, then you have to 
the reality is you do have to pause at some point and um, you don't know what it's going to be like when you come back. But part of me does still want to kind of go after that 250 at some point if I can. That's awesome. Um, One of the things that you touched on was like some of the takeaways you had from people like Ali Kiefer and others. Um, I learn a ton from everyone that that I interview on this podcast, and it's like uh, it's like a learning lesson for me every single time. You know, I spend thirty minutes or an hour with someone. Um, what are some of the the takeaways that you've had with the elites or sub elites that you've had the pleasure of of you know getting to know through through your your interview process? Um, I mean, from the elites, like I, I think. I mean, with, with Des Linden, I think like never giving up is just really important and just kind of doing things your own way and kind of, I really admired how Des really finally persevered and pushed through at Boston in that really awful, awful weather year. I thought that was, um, you know, reflective of a lot of women at the time. And she was just kind of like at the front of it and just like, like toughness personified with her just really excited me. Um, I think, I think Shalane Flanagan and just sort of the way that her, that she's been a catalyst for her teammates and that they in turn kind of kept her in the game for long enough for her to kind of like break through. And the idea that both of these women's success came in their mid to late thirties, like, I don't really think that that. I don't think American women really understand. I think, I think they know that this is a possibility for like really good athletes, but I think the majority of American women don't understand yet that actually for all of us, our athletic breakthroughs can happen at that time. And that I think we sometimes take ourselves out of the arena earlier than we have to, um, or earlier than we would if we knew that the best actually could still be yet to come. I think there's still a narrative where some American women think that their best like their, their physical peak is in their twenties. And I think that, um, I think it can be a lot later and like for all of us. And I think that, that I kind of learned by watching Des and, um, Des and Shalane win at later ages than they might've expected to, or maybe they did. I don't know. But, um, I, I really got a lot out of seeing their victory and thinking, how can I have a slice of that as well for myself? Um, and then with the sub elites, I think, I think what's really interesting about not all of them, like some, some of them are definitely used to winning races, but um, I think that there's this benefit of like when you're a kid, not winning all the time. Um, Because I think you have to learn really early on that what to do with failure um, and like Mm -hmm. what to do with loss and like kind of what, what keeps you going. Um, It has to be more than just winning. And I think a lot of the sub elites, like I'm definitely, I've, I've, always kind of like joked when I was in high school that I was like the queen of second place. Um, (laughs) But I think you can learn a lot from that. I think our culture really overly values winning sometimes. And that doesn't leave room for people who aren't necessarily number one to then they don't think of them. I think, I think it sometimes doesn't leave room for people to realize like just how great they can be because they're not, because comparatively they're not the best or something. And I think sub elites have really cracked that code in a way that, uh, other people could get, could learn a lot from. Yeah. I think it's more about progress versus perfection or, or placement. Um, and you know, for someone like myself, I I probably won't ever win a race, like a big race, but I can get better results out of myself and I can go from a 335 marathon to a 259. Yeah. And where can I go from there? And, and I think that um, yes, t- I totally agree that, you know, the culture of, um, of progress and, and improvement over time is, is where it's at. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with Phoebe Wright about, um, the difference of professional running and collegiate running. And, um, her take on it was now, now there are more, more groups than ever before with professional, within professional athletics. And she thinks that, um, the athletes who sort of, you know, did okay as collegiate runners are now landing on teams as um, as professional athletes. And actually, I, I mixed that up. What she said was the athletes that were 
really excellent um, on teams were not doing well as pro runners, sort of as the lone wolf, whereas uh, the ones that were not doing great as collegiate runners, um, you know, I, I mix that up. <laughs> I'll have to go back and check that out. But the, the, well, <laughs> the she was takeaway was people that were really good on teams, if they lost teams, like now maybe there are teams for them to, I mean, if, if they yeah. stop doing as if they stop thriving without teams, now there are teams for them to thrive again. Ex- exactly. Talent, I would guess. Yeah. So, so I think it's the, the, um, like a rising tide lifts all ships. Like, as you were saying with Shalane, like she was better because of the people around her and she was making the people around her better because she was always looking for her best. And I think that um, consistency plays a big role in that. You see athletes in their thirties now that, you know, have maybe 15 years of running on their legs and they can do things that they could never do before because they have that resiliency. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's definitely true. Um, I also think, I mean, I, I think I'm really glad that there are so many amazing uh, female journalists right now, particularly about running, um, because I think it's it's helping change a narrative around sports that, you know, from like a female first lens that I think is really valuable. And I think that one thing that's been really great for me is I typically, I mean, now my schedule is totally everything is canceled. But before that, I, I traveled a lot. I had a lot of like weekend travel. Um, it was hard for me to train. It was hard for me to have a schedule that would match anyone else in New York in terms of training regularly. So I, I did run a lot by myself. And I think um, social media is often like kind of dismissed as, as um, you know, silly or a waste of time or superficial, or it makes people feel bad about themselves. But I, I wrote about this a little bit this year. Like that wasn't the case for me. It was almost like you could use social media if you're really deliberate about it, like Instagram and um, and Strava, obviously, to to build a little cross country team for yourself, where um, where you could almost get that same support. Obviously, it's not like as you're running, but I think there can be benefits to that too. Because I think for myself, when I run with certain people that are faster than me, I almost push too hard, and I was getting injured from that, and that was part of why another reason why I started running by myself a little bit more. And but the social element of of running I've always loved. And I think you can kind of build that, that community for yourself in in other ways that I hope people, I hope that's helping people right now too, during, you know, this pandemic as people are kind of kept indoors, but that's definitely, I think those communities are available for you in all different ways these days that can hopefully help people thrive. Yeah. And I think that people are seeing people like themselves achieving things that they might want to achieve on their own. Yeah. And and so it's like, oh, they did it. Why can't I? And so um Matt Shittum with his Rambling Runner podcast, he highlights all these stories of, you know, I don't want to call them everyday people, but you know, they're everyday people, sub elites or or um, you know, one step below that. And there these are people who work nine to five and have kids and a family and this and that. And they're running, you know, 240, 250 marathons. And so it's very I think it's aspirational and I think it's um, you know, you see somebody else doing it and it's the whole, why not me? Why not me too? Why can't I do it? Yeah. I thought that was what was pretty, pretty um, resonant for me in my training cycles the past two years was with you, you could use those tools to learn more about people's stories. And as opposed to just seeing someone's finish line and just like their amazing race performance, you realize their whole journey to it actually yeah. isn't that different from your own. And um, it, it can be tremendously empowering in a way where you know just seeing someone's finish is not like that's just kind of like the finished product but when you realize that everyone is kind of struggling or persevering through their own set of challenges um that that's that's when you realize when you are too that you can kind of get strength from other people's struggle as well totally and one the what you called it before the handoff from the pros i think we see it here too you look at athletes like Steph Bruce and Sarah Hall and um the whole uh northern arizona elite team um and how they all tin man you know any of them really um how they highlight not just oh alphine won the race that's great yep. no you you knew what it took for her to win that race and you knew that she had some highs and some lows and you can be a fan of her process and her experience 
um, beyond just seeing how excited she was to, you know, break the tape. And I think that, yeah, that also has the trickle down for, for amateurs. And that's sort of how I try and use social media with my own um, persona or, or approach where 2019, I had plenty of highs uh, when it came to running, but life wasn't, you know, just as high. Um, but the year before was awful from a running standpoint. And so, you know, it's, it's that balance and, and it's, it's showing that, you know, it's not all daisies and unicorns and puppies all the time. And I think that makes everyone much more relatable. And when you're going through the lows, it makes the lows, I think a little more manageable to know that, you know, there are other people experiencing that too. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another really wonderful thing about being an amateur runner is that you just have to have the other elements in your life. Like, I I just don't know what you would I would hope that there aren't a lot of amateur runners that feel like running is their whole life. Um, and then whenever, whenever you do get those injuries, you know, you have other things going on that can catch you. Like hopefully you do have another job. Hopefully you do have a family and friends outside of running. And so you can use those injuries as an opportunity to really invest in the other sides of running where you might have less time when you are training really hard for something. Um, and I've always kind of looked at it as like a triangle where you have, I mean, I have this theory that I call like the life triangle where um, you're always striving for equilateral, where you have like all three sides um, kind of being balanced. And those sides for me tend to be like work, friends or a relationship and then like running and, you know, taken together. Those three things are your life triangle. And then so you're trying for equilateral where all three sides are the same. Um, settle for isosceles where it's like two sides are equal. Um, and one side is kind of getting the short shift. So like, say when you're training for a marathon, like running and maybe work are huge and you're just not seeing your friends and family as much. And then what you really don't want is, um, scaling where the, the long side gets like way too big because then the triangle will collapse. But it's like, you just, there's this real benefit of, of, of running where I think you can have all three sides of your life somewhat equal. And if you just keep trying to keep them all balanced, like, I think that's, that's a beautiful thing about being an amateur athlete right now. Um, professionals, I imagine it's harder because you're, 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 your kind of fitness side and your professional side are combined. But um, I think it's great when you, when you can separate all those things and have them balance each other. I think that's the best description of balance I've ever heard. Specifically, if one is too large, the triangle will collapse. Um, Magda Boulay explained it in a way that I, I loved as well. And she said, for me, it's not about balance. It's about, checking the boxes of the things that are most important to me. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if I come home and you know, I've referenced this quote like a dozen times on this podcast, but if you, you know, if you come home at the end of the day and you can look your spouse in the face and be happy and you can look your, you know, for her, her son and her dog and her employees and she was proud of her running in that day, like that's, that's the, that's the core of what's necessary and these sort of like fundamental pillars that keep you uh, afloat and sort of everything else falls into it. And I also like to look at it as like a pendulum and, and sometimes the pendulum swings far in one direction, but it has to come back. And like you said, you know, your marathon training. So sometimes it goes far in one direction, but you can't be far out one way forever. Otherwise Mm -hmm. you sort of lose the other stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really, really cool way to look at it. Yeah. I can, I can Um, be kind of gluttonous. So I think three is (laughs) three is what I need in order to be satisfied. (laughs) Cool. Um, one question that I asked Aaron that I, that I'm curious about your perspective on as well is what can men do to continue to elevate women's running and, uh, journalism in general? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there was one guy journalist once that asked me, he was like, what am I getting? He was like, what can I do better on women's sports? And I was kind of like, I don't know, make room for more women in the, in the sector. Um, running is, I think running is a, an industry or a sport where it's actually a really exciting time right now for women, because I think 
the female runners are really, really not, they're not only incredibly talented and really successful right now, like the ones at the front of the pack and in the middle of the pack and at the back of the pack. Like I just think American women are just like really, really exciting right now um, from a, from an athletic perspective, but they're also really amazing from like a, just kind of like a personality perspective. Like, again, I think you really could do some fascinating leadership studies on not only the front of the pack women, but also the middle of the pack, like our sub elite type women. Like there's just so many interesting stories there. Um, and they're sort of female forward. And, um, I think that just as in the past, the last time America was really fascinated by American distance running, it was like when Steve Prefontaine was ascendant and kind of at the head of it. And he was kind of like a renegade, like kind of like a lone wolf, but these women are doing it in more of a collective way now. And I just wonder if they could lead the way in um, kind of spearheading a new, a renaissance of intrigue in American distance running that does lift the entire sport from not only an audience perspective, but also, uh, um, you know, it could just put more money into the sport if people were more interested in it overall, if there was more audience for it. And I think probably female journalists are going to be key in elevating the sport overall for that reason. I think we just connect more to women's stories. Um, And so I think if I were a male journalist, I would just be really elevating those stories and just kind of letting women lead the way in general. And I think it will, I think the whole sport will benefit. So um, just kind of like making room, I think is uh, making room and showing and kind of amplifying the stories, reading the stories, sharing the stories um, and supporting any sort of causes will, will benefit the sport overall right now in an exciting and way that doesn't exist in a lot of sports. There aren't a lot of sports where women lead the way where the women don't have to be like small or young. Um, like if you think about American sports that, that I don't know, the country really values, you might think of like figure skating or gymnastics and those are incredible sports. Um, those are amazing athletes, but, um, they are the, the women that excel at them. They're often so young that they're girls. They're often, um, really like aesthetics are a huge part of it. And I think with running, there's an opportunity for, you know, older, strong, um, like women. Um, and there's a chance for America to, to really value the sport through like a female first way that I would be excited about. Cool. Um, why do you do it? Why do you run? Um, I think when I was younger, I used to run because I think, younger girls don't have a lot of ways to kind of control their lives. And I think running for me was a way to kind of get that agency and that control a little bit and that power over myself and my body, et cetera. I think that was great. I also think, um, you know, that that can be hard for a girl too. It could be like venting energy that, I don't know, you just need to like grow up and become more mature. And I think now I, now I run because it, it's like, it's freedom in a lot of ways. It uh, just makes me feel like I can do anything. And it's like, yeah, I guess that's why. Also walking is slow. <laughs> running <laughs> You can see more stuff. Yeah. Um, who are some of your role models in the sport? Um, I think right now it's all those sub-elite women that are um, doing amazing things while working insane jobs and having kids and um, really just continuing to challenge themselves, even though there's no spotlight on them, there's no money in it for them. Generally speaking, they're just doing it because they love it and they're challenging themselves and getting better. And I really admire that and uh, hope that I can continue to motivate myself to do the same. Cool. Um, One of the things you mentioned about why you did it at least to start was control. Um, I had a conversation with a Boston Globe reporter earlier today who was doing a story on uh, new runners and this like influx of people that are running mm-hmm. in today's day and age. Um, and he asked, like, why do you think more people are running and why is it so crowded? <laughs> I was like, because it's the one thing you can control. Uh, you can choose when, when you want to get out and go for a run and you can choose how far you go and you can, you know, shut off the world for 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. 
um, so yeah, I think, I think in a, especially in a time like this, um, it's really cool to see a lot of people choosing to start running because they can control it. Yeah. Well, I think also in this period, it's a time when, you know, a lot of Americans aren't used to having our movements controlled. And this mm-hmm. is the time when we are being, when our movements are being controlled, rightfully so. It's a pandemic. Um, we're being told to stay at home, um, but we're also being told that it's okay to go out and exercise, you know, provided that you're doing it alone, that you're socially distanced, that you're, um, you know, staying relatively close to home, that you're not um, kind of wantonly spreading disease. And I think, it's a wonderful antidote to, you know, provided that you are doing it responsibly. It's a wonderful way to kind of take back control in a time where we are necessarily relinquishing it. For sure. What are some big goals you have, um, both professionally and uh, on the running side? Um, that's a good question. Um, or are, are you a goal setter? Uh, sort of like a North Star setter. Yeah. Um, where have like general guidelines and I directions that I want to head in. Um, uh, honestly, I, I'm, I want to write like a few books. I have like a novel that I want to write and I have a, um, probably a nonfiction book that I want to write. If I ever get along to doing the proposal, um, there are a lot of big like enterprise reporting ideas that I want to do at work. I think, um, coronavirus is really kind of, changing a lot of what those opportunities would have been. Um, but I've always really liked that I've had in some ways, of course I have like my main role at work. Um, I produce our short documentary series called Opdocs, but then beyond that, it's like anything is possible. Um, so I've always really liked kind of having that at large idea of what I'm doing and, um, sort of the creative freedom that comes with that. Uh, so I think I want to like pursue those things outside of my job. Um, there are a lot of sports stories and like female sports stories that I'd love to participate in. I mean, I'd love to contribute more to raising the general profile of American distance running right now through a female forward lens um, where we do. What kind does that of, look like? Sorry. What does that look like? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I think it's, uh, I really just want to build mainstream interest in the sport. Um, I have a sports documentary idea that I'm working on through the times that will be shopping in Hollywood pretty soon. Um, and I just kind of want to like one big idea I've had for a while is, um, when I watched cheer, I thought that there might be a, a good example of doing a similar type story about like a female distance running team. Um, and just really kind of following them. And then it was kind of getting close to the Olympics, which is the obvious culmination of a story like that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's never going to happen now. But now that they've been <laughs> honed, I'm like, maybe I'll revisit that and try to really get that to work. Um, uh, and I'm sure there are also other stories that, you know, of, of issues in the sport that we need to change that I'll be tackling as well. But I think just kind of using American distance runners to, to reframe the way the country sees not only the sport and sports in general, but also women is, is a challenge that I'm interested in looking at more. Um, and also just kind of like, not just runners, but athletes, female athletes in general. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to use athletes as a way to look at, I don't know, some of the more problematic ways that Americans treat women's bodies right now. Um, and, to help other American women kind of like see their bodies in, in a more positive way. I think athletes are a way we can do that more. Um, and then, but I think uh, coronavirus is really, it's, it's changing a lot of our professional opportunities right now. So I'm just trying to see, are there any positive ways that, you know, in this, in this crisis, are there any silver linings that we can take from this? Like, obviously I don't like, I don't want things to go back to normal. I, I'd really like them to come back better. And so just trying to think about, I don't have an answer to that, but trying to think about what that might be. Um, yeah. Cause there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And um, I think moments like this, you really, are there a good time to kind of step away from the goals that you have and think much more broadly about like what's important overall. So that's what I'm trying to do. Cool. Um, where do the, where do the majority of stories come from or, or let's say, uh, someone listening to this has uh, what they think is a compelling, you know, human interest story of a of a runner in their in their community. What what does that process look like? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely moved away from just doing kind of like one-off profiles, I'd say, of like, here's an interesting person that you should know about. I've I've tried to, partly because this isn't my main job, so I try, I try every time I write something to think like, if Michelle Obama were going to, like, why should Michelle Obama see this and share this with her friends at her next like cocktail party? Um, and that's always like what I kind of tell myself, like, uh, sort of like the what's the so what? Um What's the like, what's the way that this specific story that I'm writing, what's like that nut graph that will really kind of elevate it and help someone who doesn't necessarily care about running or even care about like women overall? Like, why should they read this? Like, why should this be on like the front page or the home page? Like, why should this be like one of the most read stories of this week or something? Like, that, that's just what I try to tell myself. And if I can't come up with an answer, I, I just like shelve it for a little bit until I can. Um, just because again, I, I try to like use my time in a way where if I am going to do something that, you know, it's really just, do I want to stay up all night doing this or not? Um, the answer needs to be because someone, cause it's going to like change something. It's going to have impact. Um, so I'm always trying to like take a, take a profile, take a story and figure out if I can give it that sort of, so what, and if I can't, then, it doesn't mean it's not a not doesn't mean it's not a worthy story. It's just um, it's it's not right for me at that moment. But I, I do find that a really creative, interesting, creative challenge to to think like that. Um, but if someone does have that kind of story, like I I do love the challenge of thinking like that. And I think most stories that interest all of us, there's a reason why, and we just need to figure out what it means. Um, and so I think the I mean the best way to to send me those if you do have them is I mean my DMS are open. My Instagram's open. My email is just my first dot last name at mytimes.com. I'm really easy to get in touch with. Um, and yeah, I love, I love kind of like brainstorming why those stories should like belong in the times. Cool. Um, you talk about the North star that you, that you have and sort of follow, um, has that evolved over time? And, and if so, how has, how has the focus you've taken, um, evolved um wait i'm sorry can you say that again yeah so the you reference like versus having a specific goal of accomplishing something mm -hmm. um you you follow you know your north star for me my north star is improving every day and and you know beating what i did last year mm -hmm. um with a handful of different qualifiers so um but I, it's definitely that it hasn't always been about being better for me in the past. It's been very number driven. Like I need to do this to achieve success versus um, progress is success for me now. Uh huh. So I'm, I'm curious um, how has yours evolved over time? Cause it sounds like what, what it is now and, and correct me if I'm wrong is um, sharing these amazing stories and and developing the the human interest so that it can move things forward for large groups of people so that everybody can be better as a result of of the work that you're doing when you started in this role was it similar was that sort of off base um i think for me i think i was almost like too satisfied, trying to make the best of situations more than I should have been when I was starting at the times. Like I was almost more satisfied with incremental success to the point where the increments were just like too small. Um, mm -hmm. And where I almost like counted myself out of a game. It was like, I felt like I had hit a peak probably. And I mean, I had reasons why I was thinking that, I mean, I was getting injured in running. Um, I wrote about this in an essay this, this January. It was like something kind of like, at some point in our lives, like for some of us, this is high school. For some of us, it's college. Um, for some of us, it's the period afterwards. Like you kind of define yourself. And then at some point you just like become who you are. And then your lives get built up around whatever that is. And no matter what you might actually be capable of, everything that gets built around this, it keeps you in that same place. And I think that was kind of happening for me. I think that's why running and kind of becoming like a way better runner than I ever thought I could. Like no one's going to stop you from trying that. But in the rest of the life, in the rest of your life, they can stop you. And I think it was like keeping me from being as ambitious as I might have. Like why not, right? And so, um, I think I was just being a little too satisfied with like, oh great, like 
this was like on the most read list or, Oh, this was on the front page. It's like, I think I had to like kind of step back and like reset and say, no, what is the real point of this? Like, what do you actually want to do with this? And it's like, no, I want to change policies. I want to like start national conversations. I want to um, like change people's lives to the extent that I can. I want to change my own perception of myself and what I can do. And when, as soon as I started thinking that way, like I felt like I did radically different, um, radically different things. And I just like, I think 90% of effort and 100% of effort feel the same. And so I just started putting like 100% of effort into, into the work that I was doing. At the same time, that's exhausting. And um, I think I kind of needed to like step back from that a little bit and again, reset and try to think like, okay, how can I do this strategically um, in a way that does feel more sustainable? And so I think that's, again, like a silver lining to me of this moment where it's like, I don't feel any pressure to be better than I was before, because I think it's time just like in a race to like kind of take a break um, Mm -hmm. and then hopefully come back and be better after that. But it gets tiring to just try to be like better and better and better. So when you, so I had a really interesting chat with Mary Kane recently and she shared that she feels that structural change is finally possible. Um, So when you hear someone like that say make a statement like that based on something that, that you created, what, what does that feel like? Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's everything that you want to have come out of something that you work on. I mean, especially we started this conversation by thinking about risk and I guess like being brave sort of. And I was really nervous about what the outcomes of, of that, uh, of that reporting were like, I knew it was the truth, but you don't know how people mm-hmm. react to that truth. Um, right. We were basically telling people, we were telling the world that something that is legal and so widespread to the point, so tolerated to the point of being effectively normal. We were telling people that that was wrong and you don't know what the reaction to that is going to be. Um, all you can do is try. And yeah, so it's a tremendously great feeling to know that people did care, but um but that definitely wasn't a given. So take risks is the takeaway. We'll take smart risks do everything. (laughs) And like, you know, check things to the point where you are staying up all night. Like don't just wantonly take risks, but, um, and don't be reckless, but yeah, if, if something feels right and feels like something that you care about just because it's not popular and people aren't, it's not the status quo doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Cool. Um, if people want to follow along with with you and your reporting and your running, uh, where can we fi- uh, find you? Um, I think everything is pretty much just my uh, like at Lindsay Krauss or Lindsay Krauss at mytimes dot com or um, yeah, just like my my first and last name. Awesome, all, Lindsay. All- thanks. Cool. Uh, thanks so much for joining in today, and uh, we'll see you out there. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Take care. Of course. Bye. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next week on For the Long Run. And in the meantime, happy trails. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too.